Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the I'm pleased to welcome Jane Taffel as my guest today for Spirit in Action. Jane is executive director of an organization called Hagar USA, an affiliate of Hagar International. Hagar began in Cambodia, the project of a Swiss businessman whose Christian faith called him to do something of real value with his life. He found his mission in Cambodia in the early 1990s, working to heal the lives of abused and trafficked women and children, helping them reclaim, or perhaps claim for the first time, a well-being destroyed by the treatment that they had received. Before we talk with Jane Taffel of Hagar International, let's first listen to a sad song of the plight of a young Cambodian woman, lured away and forced into prostitution in Thailand. It's a story that's too common in that land, and a pain that Hagar International is attempting to ease. The singer is, and please excuse my pronunciation, Hun Denang, and the song is Norak Chivit, Living Hell. ตรงพนมเป็นเต้อันดาตรสาตามเกลองกัดกระหู
That was a song of farewell to her homeland by a young Cambodian woman forced into prostitution, sung by Hun Sapordanang called Living Hell. Fortunately, there are organizations working to help heal the lives of women and children suffering from this kind of abuse, and among them is Hagar, a Swiss-based Christian organization. Jane Taffel is executive director of the USA branch, and she joins me today for Spirit in Action. Jane, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here today. Do you travel a fair amount as the coordinator here in the U.S. for Hagar? Yes, I do. Um, I make periodic trips to Cambodia, and in addition, I travel across the United States in order to meet with foundations and groups and donors and so forth all across the United States. Now, I associate Hagar with Cambodia from what I read about it on the website that you provided to me, hagarinternational.org. But you're Hagar International, so is this organization about Cambodia or is it truly international? Well, Hagar grew up in Cambodia back in the early 90s. It was founded there and has been growing and becoming more complex over the last 15 years. And right at this time, we are expanding into additional countries. The decision was made about three years ago that Hager could serve more very needy women and children in the world by replicating the model in additional countries. It's rather an exciting time for the organization. We have been in Afghanistan since May of 08, and we are just on the brink of expanding into Mumbai, India, and also Vietnam. Tell us about how it got started. I believe it's Swiss-based, and it's a Christian organization. So what is the connection between Switzerland and Cambodia and Christ? Hagar was founded by a man from Switzerland named Pierre Tammy. Pierre had been a businessman in Switzerland and was basically seeking a bigger mission in life in the early 90s and did some travel. He got to Cambodia, to Phnom Penh at that time, and he was so moved by the plight of women and children that were living on the streets of Phnom Penh that basically he has been there ever since. He is motivated by his strong Christian faith, and he was reminded of the story of Hagar in the book of Genesis, where Hagar and her son Ishmael had been cast out into the desert, they'd been rejected, left to die, and he identified that story with the women and children that he found in such destitute situations in Cambodia. He opened a shelter and has been serving the disadvantaged, the abused, the exploited ever since. Why is it particularly women and children? Because from what I've read of history, Cambodia, the killing fields, that was men, women, children. Are the men not exploited to the same degree that women and children are? I would almost say yes to that question. I mean, I can answer that question a few different ways. For one, Pierre from the outset was just really had a heart for the plight of women and children. And again, that story from Genesis has guided us over these last 15 years and continues to guide our expansions. But I think it's also true that in conflict situations, in difficult life situations worldwide, particularly in the developing world, it really is women who get sort of the brunt of it and do tend to suffer more. Um, in Cambodia, 
Domestic violence is quite prevalent, and we really do feel that our calling is to serve the women and to serve the children. So what is it, Jane, that specifically is done by Hagar? What kind of projects? And I'm assuming that it's not a limited set, but there must be some different focus because you're not USAID and you're not Catholic relief organizations. What is it that makes Hagar Hagar? Well, we focus very much on the individuals, the individual women and children who come from backgrounds of abuse, exploitation, more and more from backgrounds of human trafficking. And we have programs, we kind of think of them in terms of some programs are our women's programs. Those women come to us, however, often with their children, and then those children are served along with their mothers. And then we have children's programs where children come to us when they don't have parents or don't have parents at least that they can live with. With women, our focus is on economic empowerment as sort of the end of the rehabilitative journey. We provide whatever it is they need based on whatever abuse they've been subjected to. It usually includes intensive counseling. It usually includes literacy education because they've likely never been to school before. And then it includes vocational training and finally a nurtured first formal work experience. That's on the woman's side. On the children's side, we really focus on education, just getting each individual child as far along in school as we possibly can, while at the same time providing a very nurturing living experience, intensive counseling, and all the other services. It's a holistic approach to providing whatever the child needs in order to move through recovery. So what specifically do you mean by abuse? Because in different situations, abuse can be different things. What does abuse mean in terms of Cambodia? Well, as anywhere in the world, it can have many different forms, many different expressions. The beneficiaries that we work with most likely come from backgrounds of domestic abuse by the husband in the family. And we also have a growing percentage of our caseload that come from what I believe is the most egregious form of human rights abuse, which is human trafficking. We have women who have been forced or tricked into prostitution, coerced and not allowed to leave, Really, most sadly, we have girls down to just sickeningly young ages who have also been subjected to sexual exploitation and abuse and trafficking in brothels of Phnom Penh and other areas of Cambodia. Our children's aftercare program that serves girls from these backgrounds takes children from age four and up. So we have some very sad stories among the girls that we serve in that program. We have about 80 girls right now that are being served in that program. Every one of them comes to us with a story. You know, they're all, every story is different. Every story is heartbreaking. The family situation is something that we investigate very closely. When a child comes to us, we want to know how on earth did she get into this heinous situation? What is the story? And that often guides the recovery process and how we will serve her long term. And a couple of examples... 
for instance, we had a little girl named Ing who was, I think, nine or ten, was in a family with her family, large group of siblings, impoverished family in the countryside, had never been to school, they couldn't afford to send her. And then the parents got an opportunity to send Ing to work in a household a few provinces away and thought, well, you know, one less mouth to feed, she'd probably get more food there, can't go to school anyway, and so Ing was delivered as a household helper. Well, after about two weeks as a household helper, those that had employed her sold her into a brothel, and so she was essentially raped up to nine times a day by men in this brothel. But her family, my point here, is her family had no idea that that was going to be the end result of their child going and helping in a household. So that child can perhaps be reintegrated very carefully and slowly to her family as long as, you know, we check things out and make sure that there is not the potential for this sort of thing to happen again to her. However, then there are other stories. For instance, we had a little girl named Soki, who I think is about 12 now. She was a third-generation sex worker in her family, and her family uh, apparently saw no other opportunities for their child, and they had placed her picture in a photo album that was kept at a brothel, and when a man would come and pick out Soki's photo, he would be taken to her home, and her mother would go and shake her in the middle of the night and send her off with the customer. So in that case, that child will never go home. Hagar will care for that child until she is grown. We have a system of long-term family aftercare homes, we call them, that are set up just to serve children with these kinds of needs. And you spoke of abuse that happens with respect to women, grown women, not just children being sent off. Can you give us some idea of what that really means? Well, there's also often a series of very unfortunate events and situations. The journeys that some of these women have been on before they come to Hagar is really mind-boggling. Um, one of them is the story of a woman named Sakib. You know, her journey started when she was about 14 years old, um, didn't have parents, living with an aunt and uncle, and her uncle raped her. And her cousin raped her. Her aunt didn't believe that this had happened, so she kicked Sakeep out of the house. Now, Sakeep had no parents, but she did know she had a brother and sister that she hadn't seen for some years, and she thought she kind of knew where they lived. So she tried to get there by begging a bus driver to take her, even though she didn't have any money. Well, the bus driver agreed to take her, but instead he delivered her to a brothel and sold her. So she was trapped there for, I think it was six to nine months, abused on a daily basis. And then a man came to her who she thought was a nice guy and promised to take good care of her. And so she said, okay, I'll go with you. Well, that only turned into a worst-case scenario of being taken over the border to Thailand where she was essentially kept as a sex slave for the man and also his son. So somehow Sakeep found her way back over the border, got to Phnom Penh, was pregnant, found her way to Hagar, 
and I'm happy to say is doing very well now, has been through the recovery process, is living on her own, and has, most importantly, has dreams not only for herself but for her child, who she hopes will grow up and go to university and actually become a doctor. What an amazing transformation for her to go from really a place of no hope and with help of Hagar to arrive in a place where her daughter can look forward to maybe the upper echelons, uh, the sky's the limit now. Yes, and that's what really is the most inspiring piece of this work is just to see those transformations, to see that resilience come through and that hope. And what I always want to get across is that we are working with, you know, very, very wounded women and girls from horrific backgrounds, but it really is a very encouraging work to see these transformations. Is Cambodia a predominantly violent society? Is there an excessive amount of this? I'm assuming poverty is rampant, perhaps, and that some of the trafficking has to do with that as well. I think it's important to understand that human trafficking is everywhere, so it's not just in Cambodia or just in Asia or just in countries outside of the United States. Um, That's an important perspective to hold. But there are certain areas, regions, countries that are more vulnerable than others. And uh, Cambodia, you know, I kind of think of as being sort of a perfect storm for human trafficking to flourish. As you mentioned, there is a lot of poverty and lack of employment opportunities. There is this kind of normalization of gender-based violence. And there's corruption in the government, which also plays a role in the whole picture of human trafficking from prosecutions, investigations, and enforcement of laws. So we have been seeing, unfortunately, an increase in this abuse in Cambodia, but it's certainly not exclusive to that country, unfortunately. You mentioned, Jane, that some of your travel also takes you over to Cambodia, so you've seen some of this with your own eyes. What kind of things have you seen firsthand? I have traveled really quite a bit prior to becoming engaged with Hagar, and I have traveled a lot in Asia. And when my first trip to Cambodia, I really was moved by the disparity of development. And I had one very striking experience where Hagar's staff took me through a neighborhood where some of our children live. One of our programs is um, a catch-up school that teaches children who have never had the opportunity to go to school before, and that's a rather large population in Cambodia. The school was established first to serve children who are in Hagar programs, they're living with us, But after establishment, we learned that in the surrounding impoverished neighborhood, many of the children have never been to school before either, and they have been folded into the program. So I was walked through this neighborhood where the children come from, and it was a neighborhood that had been flooded um, for a couple of months. We walked through filthy water up to our knees and above, just along little lanes where there were people living on both sides of the lane with water sloshing through their homes. It was really a 
an experience of there was just no way out for these people. The government doesn't come in and relocate them. There is no rescue. There is no opportunity to find another place to live based on their low income. So they were just making the best of it and walking on planks over the filthy water. And that neighborhood was going to exist in those conditions for another few months until they expected that the water would recede and they would have dry homes again. So that was an example of, you know, really seeing a form of destitution and egregious living situation that I had never really seen before. But what I also witnessed when I go to Cambodia in our Hagar projects is great resilience and great transformation and the great loving nature of the organization, the caregivers, and very, very inspiring opportunities to interface with the women and children who we serve and who are in various stages of recovery. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, and one of the things that I noted, and I'm asking for your input about this in terms of what you've seen in Cambodia, there is an incredible amount of poverty, certainly by U.S. standards and probably by standards of many countries in the world. There's a great deal of poverty, but what I observed in Togo, which is, of course, West Africa, is that there's an immense amount of cohesion in families. Families and extended families sink or swim together. Is that same kind of cohesiveness in society present in Cambodia as you've seen it? Well, I hate to make stereotypical generalized comments of that sort, but I really think that I would have to say no to that. And that's part of the problem. And the result is the children who are abused and the women that are um, abused and kicked out of their homes and, you know, that, that creates the need that Hagar is there to serve. But we have, you know, here a very heinous, stories of our girls who have even been sold by their own families into brothels. There is a higher proportion of family dysfunction than is probably the case in other societies. And when you think of the history of Cambodia and the very, really quite recent history of the Khmer Rouge regime um, back in the mid-70s when up to 2 million people were killed, every physician, every teacher, everybody with any level of education. The effects of that are going to reverberate through the society and even at the family level for many, many generations. And, you know, Cambodia is healing in many ways and has come quite some distance in the last decade or so. But, you know, there really is some deep wounding. I believe that Cambodia is predominantly Buddhist. Is there any religious structure that is still viable in that area? Is Christianity making inroads there? Buddhism would be the predominant religion, and Christianity is a minority group for sure. Part of what Hagar does is we do offer our Christian faith to all those that are served by Hagar, For many, it's the first time that they would have the opportunity to learn of Christ 
Hagar's philosophy is to do it in a very respectful way. We do respect all religious backgrounds, but we provide the opportunity to learn to follow Christ. And in many cases, it's a very key part of the recovery process for some of our women, many of our women and children. They come to us feeling like what happened to them was their fault and what happened to them was their fate, and there really isn't a reason to work for a different future and to work towards recovery. But by sharing with them that, yes, you know, there is an unconditional love of God and there is a reason to work towards a better future, that can be a very, very important part of the healing process. Some missions, I guess, some mission work is predominantly about shall we say, recruiting souls for Christ. And some mission work is about caring for all of the poor and needy in the way that Christ taught us to. What kind of mix is there in terms of the motivation of Hagar, as far as you are aware? Are there people who are active as volunteers and workers for Hagar who are not religious at all? Well, we have 250 staff in Cambodia, so we do not have exclusively a Christian staff. That would be impossible even if, you know, we wanted to do that because it's a minority population. But our leadership is committed to following the example of Jesus. I'm reading off of our identity statement, you know, in humbly serving and loving those most rejected and abused by society. So, you know, that is our motivation of our leadership, of our founder, and, you know, the heart of our organization. And as I said, along the way, um, we do offer a more intentional, witness and opportunity to attend devotions and Bible classes and so forth as well as part of the recovery process. On your website, it notes that you use the social enterprise model as a tool for social rehabilitation. What is the social enterprise model? Well, a social enterprise model is that we do have businesses that are run as a for-profit enterprise. However, their main reason for existence for being is tied very closely to the social mission of our organization. Let me take you back a little on the history of how um, the social enterprise model came to be. When Pierre Tammy was first serving women back in the 90s, he obviously realized that they, once they got to a point in recovery in order to move out of the shelter, clearly they needed to have a means to support themselves. So he went ahead and started training women. For instance, he and his wife trained them to make crafts, and then the crafts would be sold, or they trained them to cook and then took the food out on carts on the street of Phnom Penh to sell that. Well, as time went on, he learned that although these women then had these vocational skills and could actually go out and get jobs, they were successful in getting the jobs, but they were not successful in keeping the jobs because they had no context for the formal work experience, didn't understand how to interact with coworkers and boss, what kinds of rules needed to be followed, and 
and so forth. Plus, there was not insignificant amounts of stigmatization for women that had come from these very disadvantaged backgrounds of abuse and various forms of exploitation. So what Pierre started to do then is to create his own businesses where the mission would be to provide a healthy, nurturing environment, a forgiving work environment for the women as they got their feet on the ground and they learned how to work in a formal work environment and got further along in the recovery process. So the social enterprises in Cambodia are now a soy milk manufacturer, a catering company, and a handbag manufacturer. And together they employ probably about 350 people at this point. And part of the social enterprise model then is that we have very high social costs in how we support our workers. We provide daycare, we provide lunch, we provide preschool for children of that age. And we also have the mission of continuing to build these businesses in order to employ more and more workers on the Cambodian economic, on the job market. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, what the social enterprise piece is all about. One of the stories is the story that led to the factory, which I think is a soy factory. Where did that come from? How does this synergy come about that allows for these employment opportunities, particularly in the case of the soy factory? Well, the soy business started with making soy milk in the back of the shelter and taking it out on little carts and selling it on the street. Then it was able to expand into a commercial operation, and Hagar rented a facility for some years. The growth of that business was supported, actually, by the U.S. Department of State, which gave us some generous grant money in order to buy equipment and expand that mission. More recently, Nestle's, which had been producing in Phnom Penh, but left the country, oh, I think it was about a year ago, they donated their factory and equipment to Hagar when they decided to vacate. So it has since moved into a larger facility, which is actually so large that it houses not only the soy milk production factory, but Hagar on Time, which is our fair trade manufacturer of handbags, and even the Hagar International main offices are are housed in that facility that was donated by Nestle's. You know, I think it must be curious working in terms of another culture. I certainly experienced it in terms of my time in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer. The societal standards are different and the norms that they had in Togo versus what I came from. For instance, in the school where I taught, it was not unusual to have physical punishment, corporal punishment, which of course in the U.S. by the 1960s was getting phased out totally. The societal standards in Cambodia, do they permit more violence? Uh, Is it considered right ordering to beat your wife to discipline her? Is there that kind of a struggle between societal norms in Cambodia that we're going in with different views, that the two clash that way? Well, there is. I'm looking for some data as I'm talking here. I'm not finding it at my fingertips. I'm not sure if I have that on Cambodia or not. In India, though I know where we are moving in and expanding into Mumbai, um, there is data that shows 
you know, the percentage of women in India who report incidents of domestic violence are, you know, far, far higher than what we have here in the United States. So that is a societal difference, and I think that's one reason why we are there and why we really believe that there is a disproportionate need in these parts of the world. In case you just tuned in, this is Mark Helpsmeet of Northern Spirit Radio, and the program is Spirit in Action, and my guest today for Spirit in Action is Jane Taffel, and she's the Executive Director of Hagar USA. Now, Hagar works in many other countries, but Jane, she's right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, but she's the U.S. Executive Director for Hagar. What's your role, Jane, in terms of the United States? I'm not assuming that we have the kind of shelter and employment programs that exist in Cambodia here in the United States. What are you doing in the U.S.? Well, Hagar USA is a support entity, a support office that exists solely to support the work that Hagar is doing overseas in Cambodia and soon in additional countries. So my charge is to raise the profile of the organization across the United States, raise awareness of the egregious types of human rights abuses that we are dealing with, and really most importantly to raise support and provide additional resources, financial resources, in order to make this work happen in Cambodia. Afghanistan and other countries. So you're raising funds. Are you also engaging volunteers or workers who are going to go abroad to help out? There are some instances of helping with that. Most of our staff in Cambodia are national people. They are Cambodians. Um, Our upper level of management are, for the most part, expatriates, about a dozen of them, but it's a very international group. They come from New Zealand, Australia, United Kingdom, Switzerland, Italy, You know, and really, I think we've only got one American on the staff over there now. From time to time, though, uh, we do have needs for longer-term volunteers, not um, short-term volunteers, and additional staff. So Hager USA gets somewhat involved with that recruitment and identification of potential candidates. But for the most part, um, our role is raising support in order to facilitate this work and services to be provided overseas. I'm thinking that this is a difficult time to be doing fundraising for anything. And with the economic downturn, I've heard that most nonprofit-type organizations are struggling to get funds, that their contributions have dropped significantly. Have you experienced this? Well, Hagar USA is a relatively new organization. Although Hagar in Cambodia has been there since 1994, the United States had been somewhat neglected. So it was just about three years ago when the decision was made to expand Hagar into additional countries that it became clear that support from the United States needed to be maximized. I just came on board about a year ago. So last year was really our first year of proactive seeking funds, and we had you know, we were very satisfied that we made a lot of inroads and did as well as, you know, we expected in the first year. So really what I'm getting at is Hagar USA doesn't have much of a track record. We are, of course, concerned about the economic climate. We had a very good year with foundations last year. What we're really trying to do is build a broad support base 
of individual contributors, people that have a heart for what we do. And as far as recession-proof fundraising, to have a very broad, broad base of support of that kind of giving, income-based giving, that can be very golden in times like this. But we are hopeful that the good response that we got in 2008, there will be enough foundations that will continue to come alongside us and help us open doors for others and that we can start building more of this individual support base. Now, Jane, you are the executive director with Hagar USA. There is the larger, I guess, umbrella organization called Hagar International, as well as Hagar Cambodia. Which thing. So I guess there's a country-by-country country organization in addition to a Hagar International. Hagar International, Swiss-based Christian organization, what does it imply that the organization is Swiss-based? Does that give some particular character to it? I mean, I, I understand that that's where Pierre Tammy originates from, but does that in any way influence the nature of the organization? I would say probably not. Pierre, of course, is from Switzerland, and the official headquarters of the international organization are in Switzerland. The chair of the Hager International Board resides in Switzerland. And as I said, resources have, when Hager began, of course, its budget was much smaller, and Switzerland was probably able to, you know, pretty much carry the, carry the ball for Hager. At this point, our actual headquarters where the Hager International staff are working on a daily basis is in Phnom Penh, and I believe it will probably stay there for the long term. That is really the heart of the organization. You mentioned, Jane, that things are getting started up in several different countries, including in Afghanistan, and you mentioned Mumbai, India. Both of those places have been the scene of violence in the very recent past. How is it that Hagar can go into these areas where violence is still going on? An awful lot of nonprofit organizations are there in the reconstruction aftermath. Is this a, a tenuous role, let's say, for Hagar to go in when there's violence still happening? Well, I think Afghanistan and Mumbai, India are quite different situations. Afghanistan is definitely in a conflict situation. The decision to move into Afghanistan was made because of a heart for working with this conflict, post-conflict situation, which our board felt closely replicated the situation when Hagar began in Phnom Penh, because at that time there was still conflict, there was civil war, there was lots of violence. The initial staff for Hagar had to be evacuated a couple of times in the early years. It was, you know, quite a tenuous situation. So that was part of the decision or certainly played into the replication plan. Now, that said, things have been deteriorating in Afghanistan since we moved in on May 1st. So it is not to say that we are not concerned about the security issues right now. It has been interesting to learn, though, that there are many humanitarian non-governmental organizations from all over the world that are working, you know, presently in Afghanistan. The needs are overwhelming. The challenges are of course, very great. 
That's the situation in Afghanistan. Um, in Mumbai, I think it's a little different and less of a you know overall conflict situation, although there was the flare-up some months ago. India is really the epicenter of human trafficking of anywhere in the world, and we were invited and encouraged to go into Mumbai because although there are a lot of shelters for women from trafficking backgrounds, there is a real lack of good quality aftercare for these victims. So we feel committed for that reason to expand into Mumbai. your Hindi is weak. That was Pinjire Ke Panchi. In English, that means bird in a cage. About the heartbreak and hopelessness, I'm told, of an Indian girl trapped in a life of prostitution. 
Hagar, a Swiss-based Christian organization, began in Cambodia, now branching into India and elsewhere, to help the women and children whose lives are blighted by abuse and trafficking. And I'm speaking today with their USA Executive Director, Jane Taffel. I'd like to ask you, Jane, about some of your personal journey that got you active with this. You did say you've traveled a fair amount. Had you considered at one point being a volunteer or working with Hagar in Cambodia? Well, I haven't. I mean, I, I, I love Cambodia, and I love being with Hagar on my visits there. Um, I guess I really feel like the place for me is probably right where I am, leading this United States effort. This position has been a real gift for me personally, as I, I really had longings to get more involved with international work. However, I'm one member of a four-person family here, and the other three did not have the same longing. So it was very fortunate for me that I could find a way to interweave this work into my daily existence here in Eau Claire, and my family is able to carry on in the way that they would like to carry on and not having to relocate overseas. How did you end up getting connected specifically with Hagar? Was it just on a trip there you met someone, or did they come saying the perfect helper must be in Eau Claire, Wisconsin? Neither of the above, as you probably surmise. I had actually been working for Chippewa Valley Technical College from 2000 to, I guess it was the summer of 2007. Just started really feeling that longing to be involved more internationally, to have a larger mission. Started asking around, telling people I was seeking got connected by hook or by crook with a board member of the Hager USA board at that time, probably about two years ago now, maybe even a little longer ago. We just started getting to know each other, and I got more and more involved. I did a little contract work for them. Then they got to the point where they realized if they were really going to move this forward, they needed to hire a full-time staff person. And I was kind of the right person in the right place at the right time. At the time that the decision was made to go forward, you know, the fact that I was in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, seemed as good a location as any other in the United States, so that's kind of how it all happened. You said you were working at the Technical College here. What is your training or avocation, or what skills are specifically being brought to bear in your work for Hagar? I was most recently um, at the Technical College working in the grant writing fundraising area, and so that's the obvious link. I've also done some marketing. I have had you know, various international experiences, which have been helpful as a background. I have a master's in psychology, which I really feel kind of you know, plays into my understanding of the recovery process and, and how we serve. So it's really been a nice coming together of various things that I have done in my life and ways to serve this organization overseas. And what's the Christian aspect of this for you? Um, I'm certainly with Hagar on the feeling that following the example of humbly serving the least is exactly what it means to be a follower of Christ. I must say it has really deepened my Christian faith to be in contact with these servants overseas who are doing this on a daily basis. I'm a member of a United Methodist Church and would 
say that that has also deepened my faith and my involvement in the Christian community by my engagement with this organization. Way back when we were first talking, Jane, you mentioned that Pierre has been in Cambodia ever since. Did you mean that literally, that he's living there basically full-time except with the short visits outside? He and his wife, Simonetta, are they both located there? Did he pick up his family and move to Cambodia in order to pursue this devotion of his? Yes, definitely. In the early 90s, he picked up his family, which included three very little girls, and uh, moved there in the still-conflict situation. And he has been there consistently. In fact, um, this past Christmas time, he was in Switzerland, and it was the first time he'd celebrated Christmas in Switzerland for 15 years, which surprised me. I thought he probably would have gone back home for the Christmas season from time to time, but he has not. They have been very committed. His children have been raised there, and they are being educated or are living actually well, two of the three daughters are out of are grown and out of Cambodia, but a very committed family. It has been most definitely a family mission. And I believe that Hagar has received a number of awards, and Pierre has received them on part of the organization. Can you name some of the awards, the recognitions that have been given to Hagar for its work? Well, one of the big ones was for Pierre. The, the Department of State, United States Department of State, actually has a division totally committed um, to the trafficking in persons worldwide. Each year they declare six or seven people heroes in the worldwide fight against modern-day slavery. And Pierre was one of those heroes. I think it was actually the first year that they did declare heroes like that. So that was really a great honor. He has also won an award from the Schwab Foundation as a worldwide social entrepreneurship award. And then in addition to that, there are some other things through Cambodia and Switzerland that have been awarded. You said there's staff of something like 250 or 250 people working in Cambodia for Hagar Cambodia. What's the staff like in other countries and other places in the world, U.S. and elsewhere? Well, U.S. is an easy one. It was one until just about a month ago, and now I have been able to hire a second person, so I'm thrilled about that. So we've doubled employment with Hagar in the United States? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I was very fortunate to get a grant from a foundation that is a very, very good friend of Hagar's. They have supported us in Cambodia for years and helped us start in Afghanistan. And they also believe very strongly in Hagar USA. So they recently gave a generous amount of money so that I could hire an additional staff person and also do some other capacity building. So that has been wonderful. In Afghanistan, we still have a very small staff. We have a country director, and I think he's got five to seven people on board. Afghanistan, due to the complicated nature of that landscape in all facets, our approach there is to move in very cautiously, very wisely, very slowly. So although in the other countries we have very specific plans that are all laid out, um, and we're, once we get in there, we are ready to go. Um, in Afghanistan, we have funded the startups 
to take one entire year, if necessary, to figure it out. The overwhelming number of needs and types of needs of women there, what is it that Hager can best do to best serve? So the staff, I don't think, will grow too much more until we get to the point of actually serving women, which is still probably a couple of or a few months out. In India and Vietnam, we're taking more of a partnership approach. We're not growing from the ground up like we did in Cambodia. We're going in, finding partners who are already serving the population that we feel is ours to serve, and we are oh, sort of ramping up what they already do. So we're providing technical assistance and some staff for instance, in Mumbai, they're already, we will be working with shelters that are already providing the first steps of recovery. What they don't have in place is the job readiness skills training, the vocational training, and then the social enterprise piece. We're not there yet as far as starting operations in India and Vietnam, and I believe we will have somewhat smaller staffs because of that partnership approach, at least in our first phases there. You know, when you speak of going into Afghanistan, the question came back to me about women's roles in a society. Again, what we may think of as horrible in the United States might be acceptable in terms of the social atmosphere in Afghanistan. Now, here in Afghanistan, you're going into a place that's not Buddhist, not Christian, but Muslim, and women's roles with respect to men there are very differentiated, I believe. How can Hagar approach this in a way which is not just centric to our culture? What kind of lines can be drawn to be clear about what constitutes abuse. For instance, the fact that women may not be able to be employed in Afghanistan. In the 1950s, that was true in the United States, too. Were we abusing women here, there? What kind of lines are drawn? Is this really talking about, you know, someone's going and beating their wife? I'm trying to understand what picture we're carrying with us. It certainly is my norm in the United States that you don't do violence of any level. How is that received in these other countries? Well, let me give you an example of one population that we are looking at working with. Plans are just moving forward here. In fact, they're moving forward a little more quickly than we thought. We think we will be serving before the year, first year is up. And I just finished writing a major um, grant with our country director there. The project that we want to take on is, as it turns out, with women from trafficking backgrounds, from forced prostitution for the most part, some of whom have been trafficked into other countries and returned and others that have been abused in that way in Afghanistan. And the situation in that country is that when women are relieved from removed or rescued from these situations of slavery, their horrors and nightmare, you know, has not ended as they have facilities, so-called shelters to some extent in the country, but the women are just kept in what are more like little cells, are criminalized and punished for these things that were done to them while they were victims being in trafficked situations. 
So this is very egregious abuse that I think anybody would recognize, very inhumane, horrific situations that the women are kept in. There is just not an understanding, for one thing, of what trafficking is all about and to differentiate it from other situations. One of our desired projects in Afghanistan will be capacity building with some of these shelters that are already in place but are nowhere near implementing international humanitarian standards of care for when these women come to them. So I think that part of what you're saying is it's not just a question of violating standards in the United States. What's happening there is actually illegal in the country itself. It's just that no one's helping clean up the situation. Yes, that is also a true statement. Before I let you go, Jane, I just want to remind people that, amongst other things, they can go to your website, hagarinternational.org, and there's a link there for USA organization. Or, Jane, should they call you up on your personal phone number in the middle of the night? Well, I don't know about the middle of the night, but uh, my office phone number is 715-514-2294 certainly be happy to hear from anybody who wants more information or via email you can simply use usa at hagarinternational.org and that'll get to our office here in eau claire and thanks for extending your loving heart over to cambodia and to the rest of the world and to take the background i mean a lot of people like the adventure out there but it's an exceptional person who can make the care start here from the usa Well, thank you. It has been a very, very amazing year to be involved with this organization, and I just see it as full of promise and very excited to move into 2009. Thanks so much, Jane. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Jane Taffel, Executive Director of Hagar in the USA. Again, you can learn more and help out by going to their main site, hagarinternational.org and follow the link to Hagar USA. I will, of course, have a link posted on my northernspiritradio.org site as well. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.